The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising Podcast. Early in 2024, I'm your host, Jay Hersko. Join me once again, I have our regular regular, Mr. Mike Cadell. Mike, thanks for tuning in. Howdy, y'all. Hello, and joined once again with us uh, to talk about his new book, book this week. Uh, the book's title is Deliver Better Results. We have Mr. Gil Broza. Gil, thanks for joining. Gil, hot question, right? You're up in Canada. <laughs> Do you have snow? Yes or no? No, we don't. Oh, did anybody get snow for Christmas? I, we didn't get snow either. Nebraska did. <laughs> right. You got to be in the bowels of the Midwest. All right. So back to the task at hand here. So we, um, for our audience, we actually started having this conversation that I realized we needed to hit record. So we're going to do a bit of a cold open. Uh, again, we're having Gil back. We're going to talk about his new book, Deliver Better Results. Uh, Gil, you started out with saying, this is one of the harder books you've had to write. Um, mm-hmm. Can we can we explain a little bit? Uh, I don't not to rehash the conversation that we just had, but I think our audience would find that interesting. Um, wh- how does this one compare to say um, Agile for non-software teams? The last book that we had to have you on to talk about. There is something in common to those books in that they help you get better. They draw a path. They show you well. If you're at this point, you should do that. The new book is more general. It's not Agile specific. It is Agile friendly. If you're doing Agile, using Agile, being Agile, this is definitely a great book for you. But it is not, uh, it is intentionally not in that narrow space. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love the space. I don't like that it's narrow, but let's face it. Most of software development in the world, people, companies do their own things. Some will use Agile as described, a framework as described, but ultimately everybody customizes, changes, picks this and that, um, contexts everything. And so I was writing to all the people who build software products, technological products, and just need to get better without imposing a target state, without... um, saying here's how it's going to be without even describing a maturity model or a capability model that is very specific to a framework. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I also needed to word things a certain way and to pick certain terminology that uh, people would see themselves in and not be turned off by. Right. Right. Uh, And to your point, um, not a lot of usage of the A word. Not a whole lot of usage with the A word. It, it's used where it makes sense. For those of you that have dirty minds, we're talking about the Agile word. The Agile word. Uh, yeah. it, you use it where it makes sense, but you can tell that that is just that is just one particular flavor, flavor or one particular color of crayon in the box. And that jumped out at me very early on because I, 
I, I think it's, I think we're all safe. We're all adults here. I think it's safe to say that a lot of the companies that we've come across or worked with, their problems may not have anything to do with Agile or Waterfall or Lean or any of those things. It's, there's some general structural things. There's some general good behaviors, uh, mm-hmm. suggested behaviors that these that a lot of companies struggle with. That, and that's where I think this book for me. I my, I was texting Mike as I was reading. So I'm like, <laughs> Mike, you were on with last time. Gil was on. You know, here's here. Let's here's a copy. Check this out. And Mike and I were going back and forth, and I kept saying, Dude, I'm I'm really into this because, like to your point, Gil, not a lot of jargon, not a lot mm. of like industry specific stuff. You're really just talking about. Look, if this is where you struggle. This mm-hmm. is what you should look at. Yeah. Kind of uh, as as a illustration of of what you're just saying, Jay. Uh, next week, I'm starting a, a new client gig, working with a company that's been kind of doing the same thing for about 25 years and realizes they need to do some things differently. They have um, adopted the Scaled Agile framework, and um, as I was reading this, I'm like. I'm totally bringing this book with me <laughs> because <laughs> they you know, just what from what I know of this organization, we can they can take the ideas here in a and, and apply them in a skilled agile environment and not be doing anything that's uh, gonna cause the SPCs to lose their minds <laughs> and um, and also um, more importantly that that. It, it'll it'll guide them. So I think uh, kind of hot take you know, from from reading it through over the last week or so. It's um, I, I think you hit a sweet spot, Gil. Um, mm. So, uh, but we'll we'll talk a bit more about <laughs> what that why I think that's a sweet spot. You hit the sweet spot. Well, I'm I'm actually really glad for this feedback because this is really what I was going for, and it was super hard to do, and. This book went through multiple feedback cycles. I mean, all, all my books have, uh, but here I think it was even a bit more critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so let's start. And for those of you that are listening, those of you that are um, maybe catching a video clip, uh, please pick this up. This is up and we're going to have Johanna on to talk about her new book. These are the two books I've actually suggested to all of the people I'm in my um, in my orbit. In my mm-hmm. current place, I'm like, look, we got to read these two. Can we read these as a book club back to back? Because I think these two are really going to change how we look at what we're kind of struggling through. And to start, Gil, you introduce the idea of systems thinking as the window to view change, right? And mm-hmm. and no no offense to not throwing shade or mud or anybody, but we have there are certain modalities and certain frameworks inside of our world that have a very almost solipsistic way of looking at things. The blinders go on and this is the way to do things. And we forget the forest for the trees. And I and mm-hmm. for me, the first thing that jumped out, and I was texting Mike, I was grinning reading this. The first thing you laid on is, look, we have to look at this holistically. It's mm-hmm. not just a slice or a piece. Maybe the change starts with a slice or a piece, but you can't optim you need to optimize the whole thing. And I think that's a very again, and approach you approach it in a very non-jargony way. Like, look, this is and you call it fitness for purpose as a consideration of value delivery. What is our what is our are we fit for purpose and what we're trying to do? I thought I that resonated with me really quick. That was the first note I have, and I have a whole shit ton of my Kindle. That was the first mm-hmm. thing I highlighted. Well, so let's talk a little bit about this thing with system, because the organization is a system, right? And I'm not talking about what you need to do to the entire organization. It's not that type of management book. We have lots of those. At the same time, we're not looking at the system that is a team, right? We have lots of literature about that as well. 
with what most people um, don't seem to be working with as explicitly and intentionally as I suggest there is with this construct that is, you know, one level of magnitude above a team, but below that of the company, right? Which is what I refer to as this value delivery system. And the idea is it's like this entire cast of characters that participates in making, in, in doing work that results in delivering value to people who matter. So that is a system and I deliberately call it system and not value stream because decisions and choices in one part will have knock-on effects elsewhere and not necessarily in a linear fashion like you might assume by hearing the term value stream. Mm. I like that. Right? I like that. I mean, in, in a lot of companies, they have identified value streams. What I've seen, and it's just my small sample of, you know, from some recent clients, uh, it's sometimes a little bit smaller than it needs to be. There are actually more people involved than they have identified as being part of the value stream. But they do say, well, it is, you know, our product people and our designers and our engineers and SREs and, and whatnot. And that's great. But there is still a little bit of a sense of workflows from left to right, from up to down. You put it on a board and you just see things move and you look for delays and bottlenecks and this and that. None of which is wrong, but I think it's part of the picture. It's part of the picture in that choices that people make, human beings like you and, I, and me, right? the choices we make have knock-on effects that you will not see on a process board. Okay. Very, some very, things true. You will, very true. Yeah. Some things you will see in the form of delays and, and bottlenecks and rework and whatnot. Um, but we have so many things happen to us in the context of a human system. If we, if we want jargon, it, the term is socio-technical. I did not use this term in the book because I don't want to scare people away, right? <laughs> I just call it human system uh, or work system. We'll do all sorts of things. We as an engineer, product person, manager, program manager, will we'll make all sorts of decisions that have effects elsewhere and we won't know what to do about them. So this yeah. wants to call them out. Yeah, so on the, the topic of the socio-technical, um, I think that's the word to use, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've recently um, had a very interesting dialogue with one of my uh, one of my peers. <clears throat> um, in my company, we refer to this as the system of work, mm -hmm. and I offer the idea that you have the system of work and then you have the human system that operates the system of work, and they kind of interact and are part of each other and... Um, We've had some interesting debates about well, if they operate the system, they're part of it. And but at the end of the day, it's yeah. Mm -hmm. There's the um, processes and the right. tools and the people and exactly. The and and that's how bring... I define it in the book, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the people and their way of working. And also, when I say way of working, I define it as mindset plus tactics, right? So both how we make choices and what we specifically actually do with our process and practices and roles and artifacts and tools and whatnot. And we had that conversation three years ago. <laughs> yeah. And so it's everybody involved, including their management, all the way up to, let's say, uh -huh. CTO, if that's your situation, right? Everybody who makes a call that affects what comes out the other end of the system is part of it. I, I, yeah. Go on, Mike. To, Go to on. the um, mindset and tactics, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I'd add there's also a, a dynamic that uh, that we like to look at uh, measures or metrics, and mm. you know, so the so the idea being that you know um, uh, my my years ago I remember my dad telling me um, you get what you measure, mm-hmm. so be careful what you measure. Still true. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, he was a highway engineer and um, I learned a lot about people from him, but um, yeah. So the 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 measures you know, kind of relate to the mindset and then the measures then drive the, the tactics and they, you know, they, it, it kind of, they all fit together is kind of how I they think do. about it, but I'm curious, you know, how does that land for you? Look, it's all quite intricate. So I, I would say measures are in a way part of our tactics. So it, rather than just say practices, I, I use this umbrella term tactics because tactics. we have practices, we have roles and responsibilities, we have team structure, uh, topology, uh, tool usage, how we write our tickets in Jira, whatnot. Measures or metrics are part of that, right? And so we might say, well, um, we value frequent delivery, so we're going to measure it. And measuring the delivery is partly a result of some tactics we choose, such as continuous integration, but it also affects them. So that's why it's all systematic, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that you, you make a change or you make a call in one part, that will affect something either obviously or not obviously. Mm-hmm. And, right, right, right. You, you, know, you know this expression, you know, side effects or effects you, you just didn't bother thinking about or <laughs> some variation of it, right? So in, in a system, technically speaking, I'm sure somebody's going to catch me on this one. Um, there's no really side effects. Everything is an effect, but some of the effects are so far beyond your field of vision because you know one thing leads to the other, to the other, to the other, that you don't necessarily know about this. Right. As a the service problem... to the complexity of the system, you can't... Exactly. I can't know that I'm going to flip this lever and six days and six standard deviations from me, some Gil in a different department is going to have all of his builds are going to break and we're not going to know why. Yeah. And that's at the code level. You can have this with pretty much anything that you do. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, You change your template for the user story, and all of a sudden somebody says, well, I didn't get the detail, but this person is now off on holidays. I'm going to be assuming stuff and whatever. And before you know it, there is a knock-on effect. Mm. And we can't avoid this, right? So so in the book, I'm not saying, well, here's how you can manage it away. You can't. But the the, the big idea in, in, in the book is, Make your choices with the system in mind. Work with your colleagues, right? Don't just solve locally. And when you do solve for improvements, make them gradually in a and in a particular sequence because some depend on others. That's basically it. And along the the lines of system, there's um, I think early on there was a good bit of um, emphasis on the idea of uh, boundaries and the role that boundaries in the system play. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that kind of jumped out to me as well as a yeah that caught my eye too because <clears throat> to your point Gil sometimes we see to use the overlaid term value stream I've been places where they've defined a value stream that it's entirely too small it's not mm-hmm. completely encompassing of all the work needed but yeah. I've also seen the other side of course where we've made a value stream that's like is there anybody not in this thing like who's missing can we get the janitors yes. can we get the janitors in the in there um so it's it's very much a think about where that bounded context lands, right? And 
And that was the other thing I took away from this book is it's not a book that if you're listening and you're struggling with whatever you're going on, you could say, oh, I'll just read this book and I'll pick I'll pick one, two, four and eight. And then I'm good. I could just I could just apply those. You right. you keep bringing it back to you need to understand everything holistically. You need to take the time to do the uh, analysis, right? Mm-hmm. The, the digging the old Einstein if I have 60 minutes to live and it depends on me solving a problem, I'll spend 55 asking questions. There's a, there's an emphasis in the book I picked up of, look, you got to know where you, you're at to know where you, to understand better where you, how you're going to get to where you're trying to go. And I think right. sometimes people lazily just say, oh, okay, this, this graph works, this graph works, this pattern works from this framework. I'm just going to use those. And we're golden. Right. So I want the reader to be aware of what they're doing. I want them to understand where they are. I want them to do this collaboratively because nobody can single-handedly improve the system, including the most senior person at the top of the pyramid. At the same time, I tried to make this simple. So for instance, you mentioned fitness for purpose, right? So what, what is that? It's really, you know, to what extent or how well does the system of work help the company achieve its mission and objectives? Well, how would you know what's your current fitness for purpose? Well, before we even ask this question, we need to ask, well, why should we care, right? Are we looking for a vanity metric or are we looking to prove how awesome we are? Well, no. I mean, I include an assessment in the book of basically a little tool for assessing fitness for purpose so that you know what to do now, Mm -hmm. right? And so there's no point gaming it because if you game it and and you, you you paint yourself in brighter colors, Oh. Did we lose Gil? He's frozen. Uh, I think we lost him. Oh, man. Uh, let me pause. Hold on. Hold on. Technical difficulties. Hold on. All right, everybody. We're back. A little bit of technical difficulties. Gil, you were saying we were talking about assessments, and then we were talking about um, you, you started to say if you want to paint yourself in more rosier of colors. Yes. Right. So the way the assessment works is you're making a qualitative assessment. It's a judgment call. Again, make it collaboratively with your colleagues, compare notes and and all that. But of course, it's subjective. And so you might paint yourself in rosier colors. That's actually not going to help you. So if your system's fitness is at a level two, but the way you've assessed it, you came out level four, it's going to give you recommendations that you can't actually apply now. And I, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of the things that jumped out for me, right? So for our readers, listeners, um, there's an assessment which then tells you, okay, so based upon your feedback, this is where we think you land and this is what we think you could do. Uh, Mike, we've had long conversations about agility, uh, agility health assessments, right? And everybody suffers from Dunning-Kruger. And like you said, Gil, we gild the lily. We paint a rosier picture than we are. The One of the things that really jumped out at me with what you're presenting is if I if I tell myself I'm a three, and mm-hmm. I, just argument's sake, and I try to approach level three, and I've yet to master levels one or two. Real mm-hmm. quickly, I'm going to be like, "Well, what is this?" And you're going to throw your hands up because you're yeah. not you're not ready for that. You haven't mastered the easy part, and that's a real quick feedback loop of saying, "Maybe I was being a little bit too generous in where we where we put ourselves." Right. Now, I do want to say one more thing about the uh, the assessment. It doesn't use metrics. It is intentionally designed to take ten minutes. So my goal with it was that like the really senior people use it. Yes, you can have team leads and engineering managers and product leads and whatnot, and you probably should. But I wanted the CTO 
the VP Eng, the VP product to be able to say, all right, here's something that I can use really takes me 10 minutes, uh, maybe 15 the first time because I need to understand how this thing even works. And now I have a read on where we are right now. So I can check whether we've done the previous work so mm -hmm. that our currently assessed value uh, level is actually real. It's sustained. And then from that, what do we need to do next? Love and it. I really didn't want to, to use metrics for another reason. And that's the garbage in, garbage out. Nobody has a complete set of metrics that covers the system. Some, some companies have lots of metrics and we know the effect that has. But then you can easily mislead yourself and, th and think that you have this or that. But what I've noticed, and, and this came from working with so many clients and, and also having lots of discovery calls with, um, with companies that did not turn out to be clients. The leaders know. They know to what extent their system works or doesn't. Mm -hmm. So when I did this assessment verbally with people in person or Zoom, whatever, they know. That's how I know it takes 10 minutes. So when I asked them, all right, so for instance, in terms of, you know, achieving outcomes, what would be optimal? Like the practical relevant optimum for your system B, they kind of know, even if they <clears throat> struggle to articulate it, they know because they've been there. And then I say, well, okay, think about how things are right now. And they know. And then I ask, okay, so how things are right now, is it always an issue? Does it keep coming up in management conversations? Does it keep bugging people? Okay, then that's a far. Uh, or is it good enough? We don't even talk about it. It's part of the furniture. It's just how it is. That's a near. So, so your current state is near the optimum. And if it's neither, then it's, it's, then it's midway. That's the level of granularity. And from that, we can assess a fitness level. Will this cover 100% of the hundreds of thousands of companies out there? Probably not. Will it cover enough to be relevant and useful by far. Yep. And, and to your point, it is light and simple enough that it's giving you, you know, uh, give me the, give me the way the wind is blowing. Okay. The wind is blowing this way. Well, that's the way that we should, this is how we turn the sails. And I really, really like that. Mike, I've been, I feel like I've been yammering on thoughts. Yeah. I'm as skills describing that, you know, 10 minutes uh, running through my head was, I would love to, um, see how different people at different parts of the organization uh, evaluate their their fitness for purpose because that could be very interesting information about um, different views and perceptions. Right. So let's talk about this a little bit. First off, you need to be very clear about the boundary of, of the system. And so anybody who, who's taking this assessment needs to know that we're talking about the same boundaries. We're talking mm -hmm. about the same people doing this work. Okay, fine. Second thing is you actually do need to know it a little bit, right? You can't have been hired last week, right? You need to have been in it, let's say for a few months because some of the cycles in our work, they take months, right? Yeah. So there's that. The other is what I'm asking people to assess those fitness aspects, they're all outward looking. Right. So solving user problems, um, you know, the, the amount of usable, uh, sorry, yes, the amount of usable software that we deliver on short in short spans of time, the cost efficiency of doing certain things. 
I, I am assuming that the person has some manager slash lead position, so they actually know how to answer this. And what I've found from, again, testing this with, I don't know how many people, um, the typical director has no problem answering this. Of course, the VP or C-level, no problem at all answering this. Uh, sometimes engineering managers or product managers, it kind of depends. Now, the rest of the book is what will all of these people do? So the assessment is not the central piece in, the, in, this, in this model. It's simply a tool for you to know what you need to do next. Yeah, and you touched on a point there. Um, it's a it's a model that guides you as opposed to a yeah. prescription to try to fill, and that really yes. jumped out at me as a it's like wow, <laughs> it's not the you know hit the outer part of the radar chart or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and and I don't care if you are elite by industry standards or this and that. I I you want to be better. Every reader. I assume wants to either make their system better to deliver better results, or they have to do that because things are kind of broken or behind or slow or people are demotivated or whatnot. Okay. So I'm assuming this motivation on part of the reader. I'm also assuming the motivation borne out by plenty of years in this industry that nobody likes to be told. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like yeah. to be told, Hey, this will solve all your problems. Hey, that is how you'll be successful. Fill in the blank. Call it whatever. Scrum, Kanban, Safe, Waterfall, Lean, what, TOC, whatever. That will solve every problem that you have. Now, it might turn out after you do what some of the things I suggest for level one, that one of those actually is what you need. Okay, fine. But I don't want you putting, you know, the cart before the horse and saying, well, we're going with this model, come hell or high water, and then we'll bend reality to fit it. Because you're not going to get a fit-for-purpose system this way. Right. The, the old, uh, what is it, the no-free-lunch theorem. If there is no, ah, just do it, then everybody does it, and it'll just, just work. Just trust me. You're right. You're right. It's very much, yeah. we, we in our in our search yeah. for speed, we sometimes lose sight of the, again, the forest for the trees. Yeah. And one of the things that, that uh, really uh, rung out for me was um, looking at the dimensions of this model. They... Mm -hmm. um, ring very true to areas that I've found helpful. So um, uh, I don't want to give away the whole book, but it mm -hmm. focuses on uh, throughput, outcomes, timeliness, adaptability, consistency, and cost efficiency. And <clears throat> you think about it, you know, Jay, throughput is the first thing. And like, you know, mm -hmm. I was reading that and Jay and I were like, oh yeah, okay, this, this makes sense. Um, and then, uh, outcomes as opposed to, to anything else. So if you're moving work through the system and you're getting good outcomes, that really mm -hmm. gets you a, a, a long way. So the, there's, uh, like you said, there's some subjectivity, but there's also, I think, a brilliant simplicity in it. Um, and uh, I, I think the subjectivity is unavoidable. Yeah. Even when you use metrics, right? We can do all the analysis we want on the stars of the industry and the industry and getting all sorts of industry standards and how many times per day and whatever, but we can only do this to things that are in fact re repeatable and, and codifiable, right? For instance, how many times a day you deploy, that is a hard metric, right? Solving user problems, wicked hard, right? Mm -hmm. Timeliness, timeliness. How do you measure timeliness? Well, it's not about hitting deadlines, 
right? Because we can impose artificial deadlines. And then what? Not only that, because we work in a system, if we impose deadlines, then we create other effects, right? Not always good ones. So how do you even measure that, right? Uh, I, I talk about cost efficiency. Everybody can cut costs, but that does not make them inefficient. And it also doesn't mean that if you cut those costs, you're not going to hurt some other things, which is practically what we saw in 2023. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think the um, the subjectivity, like you said, Gil, is unavoidable. Um, it's also, I think, beneficial. Uh, as, as an example, um, I uh, worked at a, an organization a while back where um, we got our development shop to the point where our customers and our support folks were telling us to slow down on our deployments because mm -hmm. they couldn't keep up with the um, the, the pace of change was too much for the mm -hmm. the uh, user. So deploying every day in that environment would have been uh, a disaster. So it, it it is very contextual. So I, I can tell you a story from writing this book. It's my fourth book. I have a process, right? The process is very agile because the book is content development and all of that. I did everything that made sense based on my assumptions. It was a very similar process to what I had when I wrote the previous book, Agile for Non-Software Teams. But it should have worked, but it didn't. Huh. Because one of my assumptions turned out to be wrong. And the assumption was, I can get feedback quickly. And in 2023, a lot of people had other priorities and other concerns, and getting feedback was super hard. I'm more connected than I've ever been. And still, it was really, really mm. hard. And getting the feedback took a while. So if we use you know, critical path terminology, the critical path was getting the feedback. But I would not compromise on that because the, the book was so, you know, in a way, pivotal. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a new subject. So I really did not want to, uh, you know, compromise on, on feedback. That drew out my schedules like nothing else. But what I found myself doing is writing too much before getting enough feedback. Mm. And then when somebody said, you know, uh, two people made a comment on the style and how different it was from my previous books. And then I looked at it and said, oh, my God, they're right. <laughs> and what followed was a month of rewrites. So... <laughs> We we can't always get a standardized process, even if it's our own. Mm. Yeah, and you know, we're talking about companies here. I'm talking about the single individual writing something that really involves, for the most part, myself. I have done this before. I'm a process guy. I don't need to worry about you know team dynamics because there is no team. It's just me, right? And still, the process should have worked, but it didn't. That sound familiar, Jay? Yeah, a yeah. long bit and then getting feedback. Yeah, yeah, I I did that. Uh, Mike is my Mike is one of my two editors, Gil, and I'll tell you, yeah, I I, I have learned very early on that I got to stop dropping these fifteen thousand word pieces and have them to review them because with the feedback that comes is, yeah, it's not fast. It's great, but it's not fast. So yeah, it's yeah. Well, I fell into the same trap as companies do, which is people are available, so they might as well work. And so I spent time 
where I should have been getting feedback. And again, I tried. It's definitely not for lack of trying. But I spent some of that time kind of getting ahead and creating more of the draft, more of the manuscript. And then when the stylistic feedback came back, after 10 people had said nothing, they only commented on content, then I practically had to rewrite the whole thing. Oof. And this book went through more iterations than anything I've ever done. I'm glad with how it turned out. Now I think it is, in fact, more in the voice of you know my previous works, but it did not start out this way. No. So, um, Gil, there was there was something that um, caught my attention in the bit about the assessment and moving from level to level. Uh, the I don't remember the exact words, but the essence of it was pick two or three or four things out of ten and work on those, and oh, then move okay. on. Yeah, what could you talk about that a bit? Because that that you know some yes, okay. some people may that may be like a mind blowing or foreign a foreign them. concept. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So first, let's let's correct something here. You you don't pick them. So there are ten strategies all told. Each of them needs to be applied across the system. So not just in an engineering team, not just in an agile team, but across the system. And if you're at level one, you need to execute these two. They're strategies. They're high level. You can do them, you know, in various ways. Once you have executed both past a certain threshold, the book says what it is, like what you, how you would know that it's enough, then you have arrived at level two, sustainably. At level two, there's another set of two strategies, which assumes that the first two are now baked in. You execute those past their threshold, you get to level three. And then there's three more, gets you level four. Then there's three more, you get to level five. That's it. So, so you're not you trying to do all the things all at once. You're no, and that was actually one of the key keystone elements of, of, the, uh, of the model. Because something we, I'm sure both of you have done, I have done enough, pretty much every coach out there has done, is we know all of this good stuff. We want people to enjoy it and benefit from it. And we just give them everything. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because, like, guilty, why not? Guilty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, so you're already working in sprints and limiting your whip. Why should you not also write automated tests? And, and while you're at there, well, do TDD because it's better. And, and all of that goodness, and it is goodness. But what happens again and again is that people just have limited tolerance for this. The other thing is that some of these, in order for them to really stick, you need other things to be in place. For instance... Limiting WIP, it's not a process matter. It requires trust. If mm -hmm. you haven't built enough trust into the system, which happens in some of the level one strategies and then level two, limiting WIP is not going to help you much because you will feel watched because there will be all sorts of unsafe behaviors and all of that. And then we get to gaming the system mm -hmm. so we can show lower WIP, like we close a ticket when it's premature and all of that stuff. Yeah, so, so really the big deal here is sequential and incremental strategies. That's the big deal. Yes. You you touched on something, Mike, and then I'm just going to interject this. You touched on something which is very true, Gil, and Mike will tell you, Adam, I'm one of those people where I want to share everything, and I'll bet you Mike probably picks up, catches one of every five books that I suggest. 
right? Because I'm going so fast. And you're right. I really should look in that mirror when I'm coaching. And we all should look in that mirror when we're coaching and say, there are tons of great things out there. Let's start with just one. Let's mm-hmm. start with one, yeah. maybe two. Let's Can we start with this before we get to that? And I think that's it's a natural excitement thing. It's a curiosity thing. It's it's a it's a it's a joy, but it's also like we, we got to take it down and, and meet people where they're at because not everybody is operating at the same speed. It's not just excitement. Yeah. We work with organizations. They live for the next quarter or for their company vision or for whatnot. They want stuff done well yesterday, right? And that's not a bad thing. And so the question is, well, how do you get to that point, right? And that's actually one of the differences between this book and pretty much everything else, because everything else either says, here's the target state, make it happen. Or it says, look at your biggest offenders and fix them, like theory of constraints, right? And value stream mapping and and, and so on. So look at your biggest offenders, fix them. This one is something else. This one is... You can think of it as a recipe for getting healthy. It's not just a progression for being able to run 10K or you know losing 10 pounds. It's a recipe for being healthy. So if your current level of health, which again, is special for purpose, is two, here are two things you need to do to get to level three. You will not get to level five out of the gate. It's too much. There are too many things depend on each other. Mm-hmm. The, I'll be honest, every, I thought of the last couple of places that Mike and I have worked together at one or two, uh, last couple of engagements I've had, uh, and just not to overshare the book, everybody go, please go pick up a copy. Level one is manage the project portfolio with greater strategic control over committed and in-progress items. This is like, duh. And I can't tell you how many places I've worked where we actually struggle to do this. And yet when I look at your levels, we were struggling to do this, but then we're on level three. We're telling ourselves, oh, we're on level three and we need yeah. to do A, B, and C. And it's like, well, time out, time out. We're not even, we're not even doing the basics right. And that's why, right. that's where the frustration sinks in. That's where the, hey, what are we, what are we spending our money on? And all those yeah. ugly gremlins start coming out from under the, from under the, the from out of the corners and under the desk. Yeah. And, and you can actually be at level three without really managing a project portfolio. However, it won't be sustainable. You won't be able to improve from there. And chances are it will start unraveling when there's trouble when there's trouble. Right, right. You're, those are the key points. It's not sustainable. And the first sign of conflict, things are going to start falling. Things are going to start falling off slash falling apart. Yeah. And so here's something interesting, right? Managing the product portfolio happens outside the team. In the agile world, we mostly focus on the team or multiple teams, like if it's uh, you know, less or something. And teams cannot control the project portfolio. It's not in their sphere of influence. And yet we try to, you know, limit whip in the teams and get the teams to collaborate and to feel safe and whatnot. But if they keep being overburdened, and yes, that is the common term, right? Because the idea kind of comes from that. Then there, you won't be overly successful that way. Okay. It's back to it's part of a larger system of work and you got to... Yes. Yeah. So it's, are you working on the right things? Are you working on them in the right way? And then how are you making decisions about them? That, that, that's the right. kind of threads that came through to me. Yeah. Now, the other level one strategy is, are you also set up for what matters? So that is a way of working, mm-hmm. the structure, the process and whatnot. And a recommendation I make there 
in more than one place is don't jump straight to the familiar or favorite or popular in terms of uh, how you set ourselves up or the process that we have. Uh, for instance, picking safe or large scale scrum or or common or what have you, right? Instead, identify what parameters of setup mm-hmm. matter for your success. Right. And by the way, this is something that agile coaches have seen all the time, right? You can work with a single team and you can try to, um, you know, run impediments for them and to optimize how they work and whatever. But maybe optimizing this one team is actually not in the interest of the entire system. Right, right. Right. Maybe you have the uh, one architect on your team, but the one architect is also needed for some other work. But by you protecting their time and making them available to your team, you may be holding other teams back, right? And so that's why we, again, we need to optimize for the whole system. And that might give rise to some unusual structures. I give a few examples in the book. Uh, It might give rise to a somewhat different process. But I'm not telling you how it's going to be. I'm giving you some good ideas, some principles, some pointers, uh, some red flags, mostly of the nature of, if you do this, you can expect this knock-on effect in the system, right? Right, And and the rest is up to you. Because it is, you know what? It is fundamentally up to the reader. Nobody is going to follow exactly what's written in a book, right? People right. have their own complex realities, including the specific people they have on staff, the specific management, the business landscape, the pressures and the economy and this and that. Nobody's going to follow exactly what's written in the book. So I try to keep it high level enough to be, um, you know, practical, but also not theoretical. so theoretical that you say, well, now what? <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, man, Mike, so Mike, for those uh, listeners, Mike and I did at least two pages of notes. We could we could talk for hours on this. Um, one of the things you talked about, Gil, you know, like you just said, maybe optimizing one system isn't one team yeah. isn't the best use of your time because there's bigger things to play. Uh, I wish Lef was here to talk about car parts because he's a big car guy. And he, the first thing he'll tell you is you can't just strap a turbocharger on the car and say, OK, well, now I'm done because, no, you you've created how are you going to stop? Right. So if you upgrade the turbocharger, you need the new brakes, you need stiffer suspension, you need tighter steering. So all these pieces contribute to the greater health overall. And like you said, um, talking about things being sustainable, if I just strap a supercharger on my car, but I don't change my ability to steer better, be stiffer around turning or stop, well, I've just, I've created a problem that eventually under a time of stress is going to, is going to rear its head. And, and you know what? Here you're at least trying to make things better. Like, you know, I have a Toyota. Maybe I'll stick a Tesla engine in there. Good luck to me, right? <laughs> but sometimes you can make little changes and they they can have a huge impact. For instance, um, we have two sedans. In one of them, you can raise and lower the seats. And in the other, you can't. It's just they're older, um, but we like them enough. So we're keeping them. But it works out this way that... I should really be driving the one and my wife should be driving the other because she's a few inches shorter than me. And you've already confined the system a certain way. If now we went and changed the seat in like one of the cars, we've already changed the dynamic. We've changed the safety profile of the car because maybe now uh, the person can sit close enough 
far mm-hmm. enough, high enough, the mirror is something about them and whatever. And that's just the seat. I'm not talking about engine or brakes or suspension or anything of that nature, right? So even little things can have a huge impact, not where you expect them. Yeah. So that kind of leads into something, um, uh, Jay, you were, you were um, pointing out about the, the loops and change, the virtuous and vicious loops. Yeah. If we had maybe uh, talked about that a little bit. Okay, so in a system, some things lead to others. There's like a cause and effect relationship. And then those other things can lead, lead to other ones. And some of them create loops, right? So A affects B affects C, and maybe that affects A. Some of those loops reinforce change, and some of them work against change. So everybody knows the concept of virtuous cycle and vicious well people know vicious cycle i suppose more than they know virtuous cycle (laughs) right but the idea is that uh, those are reinforcing loops right if it's vicious then it reinforces a bad change or in a bad direction and if it's virtuous then it's in a good direction so for instance a virtuous loop in software development any product development for that matter uh, is if i start this developing this habit of explaining my decisions and articulating my assumptions. Okay. So when I'm talking to you about, I don't know, this feature or this process or this promise to a client or whatnot, I explain my thinking. I explain my assumptions. It's a habit I'm taking on. I'm going to say that quickly, if other people also pick up on that habit, that's going to be a virtuous loop, right? Because we will make fewer bum decisions because we were assuming what the other person meant. Okay. Vicious, uh, an example of a vicious cycle, right, is anything you could classify under project lies. <laughs> right? We all know project lies. Like, I'm 95% done, but I got nothing to show you. Uh, the status is green, right? Uh, the date is good, or any padded estimate. Okay. Those tend to be project lies, right? When they are project, um, when, when they are project lies, what happens as a result? Other people learn not to trust you, and so then all sorts of process mechanisms creep up to protect ourselves from each other. Like you say, you're ninety five percent done, but I don't trust you, so I'm going to nag you daily. I'm going to call this holding you accountable, but it's really nagging. And I'm going to look into everything you do, and I'm going to reinforce code reviews and blah, blah, blah. And before you know it, we have included a lot more process overhead because we don't actually trust each other. And we're going to continue not to trust each other because the mechanisms indicate that we don't trust each other. So we're not going to change that. The That ties to... um. Again, uh, uh, Johanna. Johanna had a quote in one of the interviews, one of the interviews we had with her, where she said, you know, we we hire adults. We should treat them like adults. And she's not wrong. I mean, uh, you had a you had a line in here, Gil, which I I, I highlighted. We sh- managers, leaders, watch the work, not the workers. And I, I think that is a that is a, a a almost pithy statement that everybody loses. Like watch watch the work, the delivery of value to our customer. Don't watch, you know, what is Mike doing for eight hours a day? I mean, I, is that really a good use of your time? Well, some would argue yes, and those are some painful people. Um, but yeah, I, watch the work itself and the system of work, not the workers. 
Yes, I wish I knew who said it first. I I couldn't find that, right? <laughs> uh, and the other thing I want to say about that one is, in all the conversations I've had with people who read the book, this is the one statement that they pointed out as in like, "Wow, this got me." Seriously, this is like probably like if the book, uh, if we looked at like Kindle highlights or things like that, that one would probably be the most highlighted. <laughs> Well, Mike, we passed the test. We're obviously not turnips. We passed the test. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Gillis, you were you were talking about um, the project lies and how that destroys the trust. It reminded mm -hmm. me of something. Um, um, I was uh, a couple years ago teaching a um, uh, a class of a framework, and the content was very um, tightly controlled. Mm -hmm. And me being me, I ad-libbed on top of the con the tightly controlled content. And um, um, half the class was um, applauding. The other half wanted to throw me out of the room <laughs> when I told them that um, Agile doesn't work without trust. And you could take that even further and say, mm -hmm. um, working together as people doesn't mm -hmm. work without trust. So you're, I think you're on to the point of, it, it can feel a bit like a you know woo-woo thing. Like, you know, I don't need to trust you. I just need to be able to rely on you. Well, actually, that is kind of trust. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because if I don't trust you, what do I do? What do I do? Yeah. Whether as a coping mechanism or maybe I'm taking responsibility because I legit don't trust you and for good reason. And so I need to act accordingly. That costs us, right? So mm -hmm. the the, uh, the term I use is, uh, you know, it places a tax, tax yeah. on, on our work. That's not my term. It's from... Uh, uh, Stephen Covey's son. Uh, but then that's exactly what happens. So when we do have trust and the walls can come down, we can do a lot of magic together, right? And everybody knows this, not woo-woo, you know this from friends, right? Mm -hmm. And family members, right? Uh -huh. It's that simple. Yeah. yeah. And it's a bit, trust becomes a very... Um, personal thing which makes some people uncomfortable i think but but at the well, end of the day it's it's necessary and it's necessary to be successful right like i, yeah. I yeah. it's necessary to have interactions that don't suck right yeah right I, I i think it's because we use the term with wider meaning that then we need it to be at work mm. so i'm not going to trust you with my kids life okay Okay, but I am going to trust you as a teammate to do what you think is right and to act in, you know, the shared interest of the company and the team and, and whatnot. Okay, but I don't need to trust you with my kid's life. Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, and anybody who wants to dig deeper on trust, Paul Zach wrote the book, The Moral Molecule, which is all about oh. trust and the virtuous cycle and the home cycle. And we did a whole mm -hmm. dive on that. <clears throat> uh, really fascinating. With, and when you trust other people, it actually comes back to you truly tenfold as far as brain chemistry is concerned. So I think you're right, Mike. And I think Gil pointed out the difference is when people hear that word, they automatically think, oh, well, I trust Mike as my cloud engineer. That doesn't mean I'm leaving my kid. It's your point. I'm not leaving my dogs with him for a weekend if I kind of barely know. I trust him with my cloud engineering. I don't necessarily trust him to take after nine ginormous shepherds. I don't think that's a wise choice. Now, there is also what happens at the extremes, right? So maybe you, you trust Mike with 99% of the work, but there is 1% where you need to have multiple eyes on the job 
or you do, or you trust and verify, or you need some process in place because the risks are too high. And even though Mike is trustworthy, he might make mistakes. Okay. And that's legit. And it's okay. It's totally okay to build elements into our way of working to protect against mistakes that we call this code review, for instance. Right. Mm -hmm. And, And there are other mechanisms that we do because we assume that working with humans until AI takes over is kind of error prone. That, that goes back to the larger yes. system. If if you've set up a system where it's okay to have imperfections become visible, that it's seen as a good yes. thing, then then you get better outcome. Look at Toyota and the way they build cars. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. I, I, so in the book, I talk about both trust and safety because there are different things. One is interpersonal and one is more of a system matter. Mm-hmm. But I also mentioned that, you know, when it comes to making the environment more safe, you have to do this across the system and not just in small pockets. So maybe you work in a team where your engineering manager ha- or product manager has created a wonderful environment and you feel safe with them. But then you look at some of the other teams and that's not the situation there. And even though you love your leader, you you might think, well, they might have to capitulate to some sort of pressure or they might be, you know, all sorts of things might happen that might compromise this, you know, trust and safety I have with them. So you have to do this across the system. Yeah. There was a a term that you used in the book, Gil. It's the first time I think I'd seen it put just this way. You talk about doing difficult work. Mm. I'm curious if you could tell the audience a bit about that. Yes. So that one I picked from a marketing book by Seth Godin, where he talks about difficult work and hard work. And then I, you know, I manipulated things a little bit. <laughs> the idea is this, that hard work, I mean, all the work we do is either hard or difficult, right? <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't be paid as much. So hard work is like when you manage your backlog or you implement something or you deploy your product. But difficult work is where you need to make impactful decisions without a script. Mm-hmm. And we have lots of those. Any, anything that is innovative, anytime you need to revise a strategy or a roadmap, anytime you ask for feedback and it comes back and it's not what you wanted, like I mentioned before with my process of writing the book, uh, or if you need to say no to someone or not yet, right? Especially like stakeholders, mm-hmm. uh, this whole idea of, you know, fail fast and learn fast. There's no script for that. It's a principle, it's a good idea, but there's no script for that. And so I pointed this out in the book because your system needs to be able to deal with this type of work. And and when we just simplify our process, sorry, when we simplify our process, we may inadvertently only deal with the hard work. Like here's how you manage a backlog. Here's how you assign tasks. Here's how you do your code reviews. But some aspects of that work is difficult and you need to be ready for it. So in my previous books, I talked about, you know, mindset and really being explicit and intentional about the choices you make there. So for instance, if a code review is, I don't know, it turns out to be horrible. How do you act? What what do you do? Right. Right. But it's not just the mindset again it's also the sensitivity to uh the effects in the system 
I love that comparison of difficult versus yeah. hard work, right? Like I'm definitely, I'm carrying that one forward because it's a good way to think about things. It's a great way to think about things. Yeah. Jay, yeah, one, and, one, yeah. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to say, somebody asked me, is this the difference between, you know, complex and non-complex? And it's not, it's not mm -hmm. the difference between predictable and unpredictable. It's just, how am I equipped to handle what just happened? So, Jay, you know, one of your criteria for a, a book is that if it um, gives you um, other books to go and read, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the uh, at the back there's uh, uh, an appendix with further reading, and um, you know, some of it was like real familiar stuff. But yeah, I got a few things out of there. Like, okay, yeah, that would that book would be worth worth uh, uh yeah. To. So it, it kind of it clears that barrier. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, it did for me too. That's honestly, Gil, and for anybody who's listening, watching, that's honestly my cheat. The first thing I do is I go into the back and I look at what is everybody calling out as, you know, for further reading or references or whatever. And when I see a bunch of stuff that I don't recognize or I know is quality, I'm like, uh, okay, okay, now I got to really dig in. Um, mm -hmm. This book was definitely up there. Joshua's last book was up there where I came away with nine other things I've got to read, which is kind of, that's the to read. That's one of my to read piles. So it's not doing me any favors. Um, but yeah, so so listen, we could easily go another hour. But, but there is something I, I want to give our listeners, watchers, that should help them along, even if they decide not to buy the book. And that is chapter one. So both of you have read it. It is not an introduction, right? This is uh -huh. like the summary of the book and the foundation for everything else and, and that fitness assessment. So this way people can have, you know, a kind of a written record of the conversation, but then they can also use it with their colleagues to kind of build a shared mental model. So there's a page on my website where people can download that and uh, we'll put the link in the show notes, right? Perfect, perfect. And Gil, if, if people want to find you, they actually have a specific question, comments for you, your website, again, I'll put it in the show notes. Is that the best way to find you? That and LinkedIn, of course. Okay, perfect. Well, Gil, I want to I want to thank you for passing along copies of the book. I want to thank you once again for coming on. Uh, I love these emails where, hey, uh, I got a new book. I want to go back on. Here's a copy. When can we set this up? I love those. Makes my life so <laughs> much easier, so much easier. Uh, so on behalf of Mike and myself, I want to thank you for coming on. On behalf of Gil, Mike, and myself, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, listening, and watching once again. Uh, please hop on our Discord server. We have a very, very vibrant conversation going uh, on all sorts of topics. This episode will be one of them. So find us there. We do have a Patreon. If you want to help offset production costs, we don't ask for much, but if you want to chip in a few bucks, we're always appreciative. Uh, and we want to thank uh, Krebs uh, from Machine Man Records who provided our outro music royalty-free. So once again, we want to thank everyone for tuning in, watching, listening. Until next time, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast signing out. <laughs>